The business of culture, the culture of business, politics, policy, media, and entertainment, iconoclasts and eccentrics, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. As much cognitive dissonance as it presents in their head, they still believe that. They still believe that Trump transformed the Republican Party to the good, even though the Republican Party, since Donald Trump was elected in 2016, has lost about 1,450 seats across the country at levels below the congressional level. That's right. Rick Wilson, pioneering never-Trumper, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, best-selling author, podcaster. He is everywhere and he is all over the past, present, and future of the Republican Party. We'll discuss Election 2024, the near impossibility of replacing Joe Biden, even at age 81. So much more. So please do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from a secure, secret, undisclosed location in Florida, I'm not saying South Florida or the Panhandle or the Redneck Riviera or whatever it is, is Rick Wilson, the longtime GOP strategist who's since become a never-Trumper. He's one of the founders of The Lincoln Project. You hear his podcast. You have seen his New York Times bestselling books. You hear him with Molly Jong Fast. He's omnipresent, internationally known, and known to rock a microphone. How are you, sir? Robert, I am doing great, man. How are you today? I'm so glad to finally have you on because I always say to Molly and others, if I were to see you at a bar mitzvah, at a bat mitzvah, at a cocktail party or something, I'd accost you and say, sir, you are of this old vintage Republican. You advise the George Herbert Walker Bush campaign of 1980, which, which might as well be 1880. I was a mere what? child at the time, but yes. <laughs> you were. What, pray tell, happened to this fabled uh, GOP postmortem of 2012? After Mitt Romney, you would say the last private equity Republican candidate lost uh, handily to Obama. A whole bunch of people like me who understood how to win elections beyond deep red states and deep red districts got together and said, you know, this losing thing rather sucks. Let's do something different. And unfortunately, that well-intentioned, well-meaning moment where they said things like, well, you know what? We need to stop demonizing the brown people. And maybe we need to understand that that our message of individual liberty and economic freedom and, and self-determination and responsibility, maybe that could echo with people who happen to be gay. I don't know. Call me crazy. And there was this idea, this moment, that the idea of individual liberty and free markets could come together uh, and, and walk away from some of the insanity and the social conservative, like, performative cruelty and the weirdo conspiracy world. And maybe that would work out better for us than trying to build something that looked like an army of Palins. Well, along comes Donald Trump and along comes this gigantic media culture that ate what was a party that had as flawed as they could be uh, principles and ideals and concepts of, of some kind of ideological framework and replaced it with the entertainment wing of the GOP, which Trump then came along, merged with that, and it turned into this grotesque, shambling creature that we have today. Okay, but let's let's play devil's advocate for a minute, whatever you want to call it. Uh, th- that did manage to eke out a win in the Electoral College, which was maybe the greatest political upset in U.S. history sure. in 2016. Did manage to get an extra Supreme Court Justice crammed through and two, really, uh, uh, kind of an eleventh hour one in terms of three, three, yeah. right, right. If with everything that happened and got Roe v. Wade overturned, got affirmative action, kind of. Well, look, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, this is one of those things I say to Democrats: like, were you not paying attention? Did you not hear them say for fifty freaking years they were going to do this? I, I had a lot of Democrats who were like, I can't believe. It. I'm like, why can't you believe it? 
They told you exactly what they were going to do. And that's the thing about authoritarians, as especially because, God bless my, my friends in the Democratic Party, but a lot of them really believe they're going to win these big ideological and political battles based on policy papers. The Republicans and the MAGAs will tell you exactly what they're going to do. And, and right now, they're, they're previewing it in an even greater scale. This is a difference in the old way. There's a difference in the old way, because look, when I was in the Republican Party, it was divided between three factions. The economic liberty conservatives, which I had a foot in that camp. The national security foreign policy conservatives, which is where I came out of. And the social conservatives, which I was never a part of. Now, at this point, you know, pre-Trump, those three factions sort of fought amongst themselves. And sometimes they'd get together and elect a president. Sometimes they wouldn't. But and as much as as much as a lot of people view George W. Bush only through the post 9-11 lens, and I, I get it, when he ran for president, he wanted to make America a society based on greater opportunity for everybody. Uh, his big policy positions were about education reform, who he, they worked on with Orrin Hatch on the right and Ted Kennedy on the left. There was an opportunity in that moment to reformat the party out of that three-legged stool where the social conservatives had so much power. But instead, when Trump came along, he, and I say this as a strategic question, he correctly identified the tactical salience of giving the evangelical part of the Republican base everything they wanted every day of the week. And now they are the dominant strain uh, inside of the party. And, and you can't really undo it without understanding that, that a party that has multiple constituencies inside of it is more diverse by definition. The Democrats have maybe too many constituencies inside of them, but, but right now the Republican Party has become an autocratic cult worshiping a single man dedicated to using that single man to advance a narrowly crafted, statist, high government intervention social conservative agenda. Now, purely that would win the presidency through the Electoral College. As I understand, uh, the campaign you worked on in 88, George Bush Sr. was yeah. the won the popular vote, and his son won re-election in 2004 with the popular vote. Yeah. Other than that, no Republican has won the popular and Electoral yeah, and, College in, what, 36 years? Yeah. And, and Robin, listen, listen, here's the thing about the Electoral College. It is what it is. It exists. It is not going away. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to wave a magic wand tomorrow and say, oh, we're pulling this thing out of the Constitution and we're being done with it now. That's it. We're done. It, 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 Democrats have to learn to win the fight. And, and I, I know that doesn't satisfy everybody who says, oh, it's unfair. It gives them this advantage. It does. It does. But it, it is not an advantage that cannot be overcome. But I'm a realist. I actually exist in the world that is, not the world I wish it to be. and so. This year, we have to go out in a very closely divided country where you have a couple big mega blue states and a couple big mega red states. Um, uh, you know, you have to go out and, and to use the words that James Carville used in 1992, when my boss, George H.W. Bush, lost, he said, we didn't break the Electoral College lock. We just picked it. And so you have to learn how to pick the Electoral College lock. And and that this year... And a Ross Perot, a Ross Perot helped that, certainly. I mean, I go and look at 92 and sure. 96. Divide. It is it is it, un, unimaginable. I mean, Louisiana, Arkansas used to be. Can you actually believe at the turn of the century they faulted Gore for not having Clinton in West Virginia enough for him? Listen, which seems unthinkable today. L listen, th this th this world that we live in now, the 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 realignment politically. When I was growing up in Florida politics, and look, I, I, my first big race was 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 the Florida you know, doing Florida field stuff for 41, this was still a state that was considered a democratic state. It was still a democratic state. Yeah, I mean, I state. grew up with, I grew up with Bob Graham. I grew up in Miami, sure. Bob Graham, Lawton Childs. Absolutely. Um, Ruben Askew. Ruben Askew. There were senatorial figures. It was sure. the astronaut. Bill, you Bill know? Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> it all seems ancient now that I think Nikki Freed is the only statewide elected, you know, Democrat. What was it the agriculture commissioner before? But that's one metaphor that that's one that I don't understand. Well, I can uh, I can tell you very you, clearly. I, I can tell you very clearly. 
Republicans, because I, I was a long-running part of that effort to take sure. over the state for the Republicans. I was one of the young guys who came back. You know, I came back out of Washington. My, 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 my then wife was seven months pregnant. I didn't have a job after the administration got defeated. And I had an offer down in Florida. And I was like, why, yes, I would like to go home now, please. And where it's warm and beautiful and, and, I, have a, uh, and, and I have a future in politics. Came down here. And for a lot of years, I helped elect as part of a big plan that was devised by the, the state party chairman, a guy named Tom Slade, way back in the 90s. Tom said, we're going to put together Operation Wipeout, and we're going to sledgehammer these you-know-whos every year, and we're going to break the back of the Democratic Party. And it was methodical. It was careful. It was not done by cheating or whamajama or mojo or thievery. It was done by going out and finding candidates who were right for the district that they were running in. And so for a long time, you would have more moderate and liberal Republicans running in South Florida, and they would pick up seats. You would have more conservative Republicans running in Central Florida, and they would pick up seats. You would go into North Florida and find old-fashioned, old-school, what they called yellow dog Democrats, and you would say, hey, you know what? You don't believe in any of this stuff the National Party believes in. You're not Ted Kennedy. Why don't you come over and switch switch parties? And we would switch parties, and we would start out with a... And didn't, a sh- didn't that happen like crazy in 94 with Clinton? Oh, dude. And in the, 96? The, the, the conversion window, when we took the state Senate in 94, we tied it up. After that, we got a we had a very good pattern. We would go in and sit down with these county sheriffs first. That's who we'd go for first. These guys <laughs> tend to be ideologically conservative. They were Democrats because they grew up being Democrats. They weren't Democrats. And look, and this is an underappreciated aspect of Florida, folks. If you draw a line between a, a sort of a crescent-shaped arc between Tampa, Orlando, and scoop up to Jacksonville, okay, everything north of that is about as conservative as the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. And when I say it's conservative, I don't mean like it's a little conservative. I mean it is so far to the right, you have a difficulty imagining it. And so when we went to Democrats, as Republicans, we went to Democratic voters in North Florida and said, hey, uh, they're going to take your guns and they hate God. And, And by the way, the Democratic Party would often play along with the gig foolishly. And they would say, yes, we hate God and guns. God damn you, you heathen rednecks. And, and you would take them. And now that is one of the most conservative areas of the entire country. But now, I, was, I was always under the impression that the population centers were, say, Orlando, a lot of Sunbelt people moving, obviously South Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Palm Beach is more conservative, but Tampa, your stomping grounds, Jacksonville. The more people move from other areas, the younger families, you know, yeah, Tallahassee, but, but, but actually which is that's, nominally blue. Tallahassee is actually blue in the city and, and part of the metro. Let's look at what happened to Tampa, where I'm from. The massive migration after World War II of the boomers that, uh, you know, the, of, the, of the World War II generation and then the boomers that followed into an area from, let's call it um, Hernando County down to... South Florida, down to Collier County, basically, all of those people coming down on the West Coast tended to be Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey. Now, New York and New Jersey had a, had an overrepresentation in Broward as well, but that's another story. Those people were middle income. They had worked their asses off in New York State or Wisconsin or Michigan or Ohio, and the taxes were high. The weather sucked. They wanted to come down be able to cash out their house up there they'd paid a mortgage on for sure. 30 years buy something nice near the water or on the water and have a warm place to die with no taxes and they had it and that transformed a lot of that transformed a lot of the of the political aspects of Florida at a level that people cannot begin to understand it was a democratic area when i was growing up okay it is now a radioactive red flaming, conspiracy-driven um, province along the West Coast that you cannot... I'll, I'll tell you a great story. In Sarasota, Florida right now, there's been three waves uh, in, in politics there in the last eight or nine years. All of the traditional Bush Republicans were thrown out back in 16 and 18, and they were replaced by moderate 
to transitional moderate MAGAs. Those people were thrown out by the hardcore MAGAs, and now the hardcore MAGAs are being thrown out of office by the QAnoners. And the insanity of those transitions has yet to be appreciated at the national level. It is, it is a state where it was engineered very carefully and very thoroughly to you know, build those wins. But then, unfortunately for the Republicans, like all one-party systems, they become more brittle and fragile over time and more corrupt over time. Well, it's self-limiting. It becomes so indulgent over time. If we think about how taboo somebody like a Pat Buchanan was in 1996, that was fringe. That was far right. And to think now, it's kind of quaint. Oh, Pat Buchanan's a Washington squish. I mean, it's a mild pH compared to you know right. what Trump, what Trump and MAGA have have normalized. But that to me is uh, really amazing. Or people that you work with again, you know, thinking in the Georgia Senate campaign, which was pretty contentious, the U.S. Senate in two thousand two, sure. where George W. Bush had really rare midterm gains, and people talked about that being unusually mm-hmm. partisan. We look back at these things. We look back at the McCain, you know, correcting someone in the audience calling Obama a Muslim. Again, that might as well have been 50 years ago because uh, the, right. the curve was bent so much after 2016. The, uh, you know, you talk about the new abnormal, right? The, the normalcy, uh, equilibrium was, was really promptly redefined and it's constantly redefined, even after an attempted insurrection. You know, if mm-hmm. you trash the hotel room on the way out, you figure that's it. That's your last thing. But he's still, Donald Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party. You know, look, we are in a world where the political incentives and operative principles do not apply as they did even in 2014. There is a oppositional defiant disorder inside the Republican political base that will do everything it can to burn the building down. They believe that everything that happened before, that everything that existed before Trump is poisoned, corrupted, you know, it was the establishment rhino, shill, Soros, whatever the phrase you want to use. They believe everything before Trump was politically invalid. And while I have watched it happen over and over and over and over again, and it, as much cognitive dissonance as it, as it presents in their head, they still believe that. They still believe that, this, that, that Trump transformed the Republican Party to the good, even though the Republican Party, since Donald Trump was elected in 2016, has lost about 1,450 seats across the country at levels below the congressional level. They've wow, lost. You know, we always hear that stat with respect to Obama since 2010, right? Yeah. The, the, the coring out of the foundation of the party, which then set the stage for uh, MAGA and what happened yeah. in 2016. Listen, listen, my, my friend Michael Steele and I have talked about this a lot. He was party chairman. We added 1,100 seats during Michael's tenure as chairman. Out in the out of the country, okay, um, and, and I and I take I I take those things as a more interesting barometer in many ways because redistricting and gerrymandering is a gigantic factor in what the congressional template looks like and what what the congressional map looks like. Below that, though, those things are are more uh, amenable to what's actually happening in the minds of people, and Trumpism does not scale. Look, you try to put a Doug Mastriano on the ticket in Pennsylvania, as Trumpy a Trumper as the Trump has ever trumped, it doesn't work. You try to put a Carrie Lake, it doesn't work. You Correct. Try to put- it might not scale. It might not scale, Rick. But isn't the game just to win about seventy-five thousand votes across three, uh, you know, light blue purple states, right in well, the Midwest? The, pres- the twenty-sixteen the game plan for the presidential race. Our model: we're we're in five states. And our model basically depends on moving about 300,000 voters across five states. And when you think about the risks that, 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 that obtain there, they're gigantic. It's a terrible political crapshoot because of the state's overall behavior. You know, California's going to California and Texas is going to Texas. And look, I, I will tell you that this, I'm, I've said this many times. 2016 might have been a whole different ball game if Hillary Clinton's people had her in Michigan and Wisconsin campaigning all the time. But they didn't. They didn't feel the need for it. So you've got to do the work everywhere all the time, but you've got to do the work in the key states because we, again, going back to the Electoral College, people may not like it. They may not want it to be there, but it is there. And we have to work in the world that exists, not the one we wish it to be. 
Full disclosure, please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all the fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link you can find all of the podcatchers here is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. A shout out to our radio listeners. We are on Radio IQ NPR across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Let's see. We are down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. You could catch us out west in Ventura County on KPPQLP. Uh, holler if you too would like us on your air. We are on all the socials at handle Full D Radio. If you are just joining us, my esteemed guest is Rick Wilson. He's a longtime Republican strategist. He became a uh, never Trumper uh, when Donald Trump ascended to the party's nomination, presidential nomination in 2016. You've seen his bylines in the New York Times, the Daily Beast, the Washington Post. He podcasts with Molly Jong Fast. He's had New York Times bestselling books. He is a co-founder of the Lincoln Project. Uh, sir, on on Joe Biden, uh, obviously, sure. uh, this is not an, uh, and you've talked about this quite a bit, it's not an optimal matchup when you have uh, a pair of candidates with such high disapproval of the general electorate. And yet, um, you have seen Biden beat Trump before. I guess there are certain people out there who can imagine holding their noses and voting for a Joe Biden Democrat, including, you know, you've seen George Conway and other contemporaries of yours. How is it that someone that that was um, so weak and had so many flaws, I mean, if you think about age or, or, or ways he could be knocked or susceptibility to something like the Her report that just came out, that he wasn't primary, that there wasn't more of an organic movement in the party uh, to kind of force him to win this, to earn this? Well, I'll give you two reasons. The first is, and I say this as a former Republican, now independent, Joe Biden has been a good president. Joe Biden has done the job of president in a, in a capable, steady, calm, smart way. He has been a good president. The second big reason there wasn't a real primary, and Dean Phillips doesn't count, that was, that was an experiment in vanity and, and stupidity. The, the second reason that is that there have been 28 people who have run against Donald Trump in Republican primaries and in general elections. Only one has defeated him, and that's Joe Biden. Biden scans to the American people in a way that is, does not allow him to be pigeonholed in the you're a Satanist, socialist, George Soros, communist, prog shill frame that is very familiar to Republican voters. It, it is a it is a gift that Joe Biden has that he does not come across that way, either in terms of his affect or his policies. He's been a, a center-left Democrat in the great sort of long tradition of this country. He doesn't meet the ideological extremism that Fox News needs to scare the hell out of grandma. So and, are there are there Alex P. Keaton family ties kind of New England type country club Republicans who are you know they'll go into they'll go in there and they'll say this is really the best I mean the, I, I I compare it to like you know you go to a banquet or a, a a luncheon or a conference and there's salmon there's salmon it's very basic with steamed vegetables it gets the job done it's not something you'll get excited right. about it's not the best surf and turf but it gets the job done it offends mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. least number of people and uh satisfies the most you know the percentage of pallets in attendance is that still what he accomplishes even despite i guess the age of 81 and everybody seemingly everyone saying he's way too old for this job he is he doesn't frighten people in the way that the republicans have become very good at using democrats to frighten people with Barack Obama, they were on the, he's a Kenyan Muslim socialist sleeper agent. Uh, it didn't work. It activated their base. With Hillary Clinton, she was the, you know, the Madame Defarge of the Democratic Party. She was this, <laughs> this Lady Macbeth figure in their minds um, that, you know, has blood on her hands and is some sort of, like, progressive mastermind bringing full communism, all the, all the crazy stuff like that, right? Now, in those cases... They kind of played into the type a little too much. Joe Biden still comes across as sort of Scranton Joe to most American voters. So I'm less concerned about the ability of Republicans to, to do that fear-mongering, crazy town stuff with their base, with Biden, than with any other candidate who could have come along in a Democratic primary, frankly. 
Um, and I, I've said and what this was before. what was the center of gravity that stopped that? I mean, you 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 sense you don't have a very strong DNC chief, or you know Chuck Schumer as 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 the leader of the Democrats in the Senate. I mean, who was it that kept everybody that whipped everyone in place in twenty let's say twenty eighteen after the great blue wave and everything and said just keep this in place? Look, there were a lot of people who wanted an alternative. Okay, there were a lot of people who were out there running for president in the hopes. I mean, and I'll be very frank about it, there were a lot of Democrats running for president who didn't want to say the words, but they were hoping, oh, maybe Biden will have a medical problem. Maybe there'll be something that will allow us to sneak in under the radar and become the nominee. You know, hello, Gavin Newsom. Um, but none of it worked in the end of the day. None of it, none of it played at the end of the day. And again, again, Dean Phillips, the only guy that actually got in the primary against Biden was advised by a former colleague of mine. It was an idiotic vanity play that essentially will go down in history as one of the stupidest things in American political history. Good luck and God bless. But all this added up, all this this aggregate sort of inevitability about Biden being the nominee, it's not a bad thing. He has been a good president. I keep telling people this, like, stop overthinking the fact that Biden has been a good president because he has. And, and that, yes, does he have low approvals? Yes, he does. No president in history is ever going to have approval ratings like they did before Trump. Okay. The country is too divided. It is too profoundly split along ideological axes. And and that is a bad thing. I don't like it. I think it's terrible for the country. I think it's I think it's a a, a big downside, a negative for the country, but it is what it is. It is a reality. It is the world as we live in, not the world we wish it to be. Is it actually impossible midstream this late into 2024 to replace this candidate? And again, I, I, yes, I'm not asking in a coy way. I mean, in, I don't even know how that something like that would work. I, I can't look to 68, for examples, or a contested no, convention. Look, I mean, at this point, every filing deadline in the country for the presidential is either long past or is pendant. If any former Democratic, if, if FDR rose from the grave to run again, he couldn't get on the ballot in enough places to do it. And, and, and look, I, I say this a lot. It's an indulgence now among people who don't do a lot of actual politics to hand wave and think, oh, well, it's easy. We could just swap him out for Gavin or Gretchen Whitmer or any blah, 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 blah or Josh Shapiro. It doesn't work that way. The state laws don't work that way. The party bylaws don't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Now, if Joe Biden dropped dead, there are ways to deal, deal with that problem. But for the most part, all of this is just self-indulgent garbage. For the most part, all this is just drawing room, uh, fantasizing about you know the best. I mean, being it's the hot enemy stove. It's hot stove league stuff. I mean, in yeah. the absence of a protracted primary. With the DeSantis thing, as you know, you have a you have a local view on that, a bird's eye view of what happened. There. Sure. In Tallahassee, how quickly that flamed out, how, you know, Nikki Haley's about to lose South Carolina. Is that a quixotic thing? Do you just hang on and maybe play for 2028? But I also look back at history and I love to study, you know, these, you go back and see New York Times stories from 1983 saying John Glenn was worrisomely, I mean, he had a six point lead. Uh, mm -hmm. Democratic Senator John Glenn over Ronald Reagan, who a year later would win in a landslide over Walter Mondale. You see all these stories about the Democratic Party wanting to, maybe reconsider Barack Obama in uh, 2011, that he was damaged goods. There was no in, way in 2011, Barack Obama was rolling at about 39% approval rating. Wow. Came back to win one, a crushing victory. And, and look, in, in 1984, Ronald Reagan was in the low 30s as well. Came back to win a crushing victory. And, and look, part of why Reagan won was that the economy that he came into in 1980 one, when he took office, inflation was crazy, unemployment was high, and we ended up with the economy. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying he did it all, but he benefited from the fact that the economy improved dramatically in late '83 and early '84. Wait, economy improving dramatically in late '23 and early '24. History does repeat itself with a fat beat once in a while. And what's happening at the moment is that the economy is improving rapidly. Joe Biden is benefiting from that economic improvement. And Republicans are 
unable to make the case anymore. Oh my God, the Biden economy is a hellscape where the living envy the dead. And oh, it's awful. We're scrapping, we're scavenging for trash and we're, you know, we're eating out of trash cans like raccoons. And and, and that idea that it was- But in this- fairness, that kind of inflation had not been felt since the early 80s, which I think Carter got blamed for it. Reagan in his first couple of years took a disproportionate amount of hit. The recession that came out of breaking the back of that inflation, right? And now we're now we're massive. back down to three percent approximately, right? And uh, yeah, and but at, an extra at, at, at extra value meal costs nine, ten bucks. Right? You see all that stuff uh, everywhere. Of look, course, they're going to blame the guy in office, or or, or it is or the what it is. Person is, is not going to say S and P five thousand, right? But as rate cuts begin to kick in, and they will, we are achieving right now under Joe Biden one thing that has never happened in my lifetime. We are at basically full employment in the country and we have rising wages that's crazy town that's actually something that is changing the political ball game my friend joe trippy has a case that he makes that the underpinning of any good economic news takes about three to seven months to percolate into the minds of voters we're seeing it in our polling we're seeing it in in, in other polling that they are beginning to tell you that the, that that bifurcation Yes, Republicans will always say the, under Biden, the economy is hell. But when you ask them, are you doing better economically? They're all saying yes. And so it, we are definitely seeing the benefits of an improving economy, you know, making the case that, you know, the situation Biden inherited. Um, and, and look, let's be perfectly frank, the juicing of the economy with the gigantic COVID spending that occurred is what led to the inflationary drive that hit us in the beginning of the Biden era. That is fading down, and that inflation is reducing now as a central matter of salience to, to, to voters. It is, it is less compelling as an argument than it once was. And look, I think the final reason why, why I, I think Biden is in better shape than a lot of people appreciate is that the Dobbs decision blew up a part of the Republican coalition that the Republicans don't want to talk about. Between 22 and 28% of Republican women are either... Roe versus Wade pro-choice or libertarian, leave me alone, stay out of my business pro-choice. Those people saw Dobbs blow up what was a uncomfortable, long-running consensus in American politics. I mean, even Donald Trump kind of squirms now when he's asked. Sure. There's prevarication. You see him, right. You see him trying to walk it back and, well, you know, I'll do 16 weeks because it sounds like a round number and this, the damage it did to the Republican base comes down to a simple set of numbers. And look, I, I was a Soviet studies and philosophy guy in college. I'm not a math guy, but I have math guys. And my math guys built out a model in 2020. We asked them, give us the number of persuadable Republican voters who we can talk out of being for Trump. And I said, well, depending on the state, it's between three and 8%. Now, our model has gotten a lot more granular and, and more accurate since then. After Dobbs, that model now says between seven and eleven percent of Republicans are persuadable. So that here's the deal: you get asked, how pool. does how how if at all do reverse coattails work? So if you are not interested in the salmon, the cold salmon and and steamed veggies at the top yeah. of the ballot, but at the bottom, in the middle of the ballot, you're talking about a statewide referendum on uh, women's choice rights, right? Which has worked in the Midwest, which has worked in parts of. Sure, it's every, every, actually, it's worked everywhere it's been put on the ballot. So the question you get asked all the time, is this going to percolate up to the top to the extent you do that? Are you going to see people split between Dobbs and then maybe voting Trump? Or is it much more likely to cleave Biden's way? <sighs> what we're seeing, what we're in 20, there was a ticket splitting effect among our voters that we targeted, where they would vote for Joe Biden, and then they'd vote Republican down the rest of the ballot. That effect, I will not say it's completely disappeared, but it is meaningfully reduced. We are now seeing a larger number of Republicans who are like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm done. And I'll tell you why. It's guys like Ron DeSantis. It's guys like Mike Johnson. It's guys like Jim Jordan and Jim Comer and Matt Gates, where there's a level to which there is, and people hate this in politics, but it's true. There's an aesthetic dislike of the way they talk about um, women's matters in abortion, birth control. They're seeing it out in the States where Republicans are saying, you know, we're going to have to monitor your, your, uh, your apps that track your period just to make sure you haven't had an abortion, little lady. You're seeing the, the six-week bans. 
You're seeing the attempts across about 20 states this year to end Plan B. You're seeing now states that are going to end up banning IVF for fertility treatment. All these things are adding up very quickly to a an uncomfortable position in the minds of many, many, many people who should be Republican voters. So why isn't that why isn't that incensing the likes of, let's say, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, Austin, Cincinnati, Cleveland, right? More kind of with it, uh, 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 you know, socially not that well, right wing uh, cities me, let me, uh, that might say, wow, you're really going too far right for me. A lot of people that are in that are in a very narrow slice of political demography. They're more affluent. They're more educated. They're more suburban. Look, I'll describe the person generically and in a fairly broad strokes, but the person that's going to vote against Republicans who is behaviorally a Republican is one of two things. It's either an affluent professional woman with about two, two and a half kids who lives in an upper income suburb, or, and this is a thing outside of the Dobbs spectrum that we're, we're seeing an increasing number of what we call red dawn conservatives. There's a you know the late boomers, uh, early Xers, mid Xers, and 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 early millennials are now looking at this weird new pro Putin caucus. This this you know Russia's great caucus, and they're repulsed by it. They're like, no, that's not what we believe in. What the hell is this about? And the, those two broad demos right now are a giant soft spot inside the Republican coalition. And, and a lot of it came down to the fact that uh, generations of people were on the row question. We had a kind of uneasy consensus in the country. Nobody loved row, but it had become sort of the you know an area where people even if they were pro-life didn't necessarily want to go into this new world where the Mike Johnsons of the world and the Ron DeSantis's of the world are pushing these monitoring women and banning interstate travel and six-week bans and all these other things. And on the Dobbs front, it's because, you know, America scans in leadership. They look for people who are going to be protecting American security. And what do you have the Republicans doing right now? They're siding with Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. They're listening to Donald Trump say that Putin should do what he wants to attack our NATO allies. If They should do whatever they want. And we're looking at Republicans who gave up one of their core issues this year on the border, where they said, oh, the border is the crisis of all crises. It must be addressed immediately. We've got to do everything we can to close the... Nah, we'll wait for 14 months. Well, because we want the political issue. So they, they, they've they revealed themselves to be weak on, on the foreign policy and defense front, which used to be a fundamental core principle of the Republican Party. And that has split a lot of people off from them. And again, the Dobbs thing is a is a really ugly wound inside the Republican GOP. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. You know, Rick, who is the median uh, GOP never Trump resistance? I'm thinking of Ambassador Bolton. I'm thinking about Liz Cheney. I'm thinking about Nikki Haley. I'm thinking about some, I, I don't know. I mean, occasional governor of Massachusetts is a Republican. There are some people in Long Island and in Connecticut who, you know, uh, they vote their pocketbooks and their taxes. I live in Virginia. Virginia was reliably red, I think, until Obama. And now it's become much more mm-hmm. kind of purple leaning. Mm-hmm. Are they in waiting? Are they kind of fabled? Are they waiting to pounce? Are they waiting for and I told you so moment, or is it going to have to congeal around a personality, a candidate, another person who comes in after Trump? Look, Donald Trump's power over the Republican Party base is absolutely beyond mortal comprehension. It is impossible. There is no candidate out there in the Republican primary world who could beat Trump at this moment. The only way you break Trumpism, the only way you break the MAGA spell over the base, is by demonstrating to them over and over again that it is the ideology of losers, that it is it is a poisonous, failed approach. And look, one of the things about Trump that changed the Republican Party's temperature and chemistry was that he activated... So in, in, in let me just do a little bit of behind-the-curtain stuff. 
Sure. Go ahead. In Republican and well, in all professional politics, you scale voters from a one to a five. A one voter never votes. A five voter votes in every damn election possible, including the off-year election for mosquito control board or dog catcher, okay? Donald Trump pulled out a lot of one and two voters because he was a celebrity, because he was amusing, because Rupert Murdoch went all in, because Jeff Zucker went all in, and they covered him 24 hours a day. Those ones and twos are low propensity voters. They will go back to sleep after Trump is gone. They have an interest in this movement led by this man, but if he's off the stage, it's very difficult for them to sustain this sort of fervor and intensity that he delivered for them in the last few years. Now, does America need a center-right party? Absolutely. I don't think one-party solutions work ever, left or right. I think they always lead to corruption and stagnation, left or right. Because look, California and New York and New Jersey are not covering themselves in ideological glory by having you know, supermajorities at scale. Florida and Texas are not covering themselves in glory by having supermajorities at scale. None of these things work out the way that I, I think the dynamism in American politics has to come from competing ideological viewpoints. Trumpism is not an ideological viewpoint. It's an authoritarian personality cult. You, once you break him off of it, maybe there's a chance for a center-right party to reemerge, but I think the Republican Party as it's comprised today is utterly broken and compromised and will never want to really come back. Tell me what Georgia told us in 2020. I mean, it could have been really one-time, one-off, flukish, idiosyncratic because of COVID and the peculiarities of that election. But sure. uh, I absolutely did not expect that. And that is a one-two with, as you know, Arizona, which incensed Trump mm -hmm. and with Fox News the night of. I'm looking back at, you know, I try to study 2008. Yes, it was uh, love in the time of financial crisis. It wasn't exactly normal. You had maybe a weak candidate in John McCain. Yep. Uh, you had a very inspiring candidate in Barack Obama. I think he took Indiana. Did he take North Carolina? He took Iowa. I mean, Ohio and Florida. Just unthinkable stuff. And I'm trying to game out, maybe there are new states in play. For as far right as Florida has swung, again, Virginia is now much more reliably, I guess, purplish. Hillary Clinton Purple. took it. Yep. Maybe North Carolina is in play. For you know, Stop romancing Texas for a while. It's going to take a while. But what, what, are you see, what are you hearing on that front, especially in that you were so involved in Georgia uh, 20 years ago? Well, I've been involved in Georgia in 2020 as well. We spent a lot of time and effort. Uh, on the Senate races there. And look, Georgia's chemistry is fundamentally unique. You have a state that is as deep red as humanly possible outside of the donut of counties that surround Atlanta. And you have about seven or eight of the counties that are as blue as humanly imaginable in that donut. And it is a state that has fundamentally changed. The Republican population has gotten much older and the Atlanta metro has gotten much younger. And it's not that it's more diverse. It's actually a little whiter than it used to be. But it is, it, there's a rising wave of younger voters who have moved to Georgia. Again, that migration out of New York and Chicago and Philly and everywhere else on the basically east of the Rockies of people who came to, to, to cities like, like Atlanta, and who were going to also to cities like Charlotte in North Carolina. Um, you know, Mecklenburg County was once a reliably Republican county, and now it is a place where you, know, you can win a statewide if you do your work in Mecklenburg and a couple of other small counties. Wow. But Georgia is becoming a state where if you assemble a suburban Democratic and Republican coalition with the African-American vote, uh, and in the Atlanta metro, and you roll up some numbers on the coast in Savannah and a few other, in Augusta, a few other places that have some pools of bluer voters, you can do very well for yourself there. Now, it is gerrymandered to hell and gone on the state legislative level. That will probably not last uh, you know, much longer. It's still going to be a factor. But even the Democrats there are not running as hard progressives. They're running as Georgia Democrats. You know, you, you both both Ossoff and Warnock 
did not run straight up the, you know, out of the Democratic DC playbook. The problem with all of this is the incentive structure of American politics today. What is the incentive structure? On the right, in particular, the incentive structure is what we call the hamster wheel. The hamster wheel is this. You are a Republican and you want to be on Fox News. Because why? That's going to drive your online donations. The more online donations you get, the more you rise in the ecosystem of Republican politics. The more notoriety you achieve, the more you will rise in the ecosystem. So what they do, a Republican, let's just call him John Smith. He'll go out and say, I think that anyone who has an abortion should be branded with the letter A on their forehead. And <laughs> then and then the world explodes. They go, oh my God, look at this son of a What is he saying? Oh, this is insane. And then John Smith puts out an email to his email list and says, can you believe they're trying to cancel me for being pro-life? And then he goes on Fox and says, oh my God, Sean, listen, I think branding these people with an A is an idea whose time has come. And Sean goes, well, maybe that's a little more than we wanted to do, but isn't it important to defeat godless Satanists? And then the guy goes out and puts out another email and says, did you see me on Sean Hannity last night? And rinse and repeat. And they do this over, look at Matt Gates, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, look at Lauren Boebert, Lauren Andy Biggs, Paul yeah. Gosar, any of these idiots. They do this over and over and over and over again. And that's the incentive structure now. They don't care about passing legislation. They don't care about helping their constituents. Matt Gates wouldn't know his constituents' issues if they bit him on the He wouldn't know what, what's going on at the Pensacola Naval Air Station or any of the big companies in, in this district if it was hitting him in the face with a frying pan. Let me get he this right. Is that, the village, is that the villages in Central no, Florida? No, 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 no. The villages is Central Florida, north of Orlando. Right, which I always try to understand. If they are indeed a lot of these New Yorkers and Ohio people and everything that came down, when did they suddenly, you know, indulge the likes of Matt Gates or other people who could just go directly to social media or Fox News or or fundraising? It never struck me that that was kind of a hotbed of of a you know socially conservative or conspiratorial thought. Look, uh, I mean Florida, and I'm I'm working on a book about Florida right now, actually. Which is because I don't have much else to do. I'm so I'm so <laughs> all my all <laughs> no, my free time. Yeah, all my yeah. free time. Um, thank God for voice recognition. That's all I say. Um, look, the villages is one of those places where you had a lot of people from the Midwest and the Northeast who wanted to come to Florida because they were going to spend the last twenty years of their lives in a place that was warm and pleasant, and and again a, a warm place with no, low taxes. You know, cheap housing values, low taxes, good weather. It's a better place to die than 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 in a, a you know than in the frozen tundra of Minnesota or wherever the wherever the heck they came from, right? You know, swaths of swaths of Arizona as well. Scottsdale, sure. right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Look, there there's a sunbelt effect in the country, obviously. Um so you know, look, long and the short of this thing is the villages developed its own weird culture where it became a Republican hotbed, about 100,000 Republican voters there in Florida. And you hey, look, that's 5%, 7% of what you need in a statewide. So, you know, it's like, a, it's like Mecca for Republicans. They're always there. They're always doing events there. They're always raising money there. One of the biggest political events I've ever seen in my life was Sarah Palin went to the villages and had like 100,000 people screaming their heads off. And I, all I could think of was, we're so <laughs> Sorry. You can, you can beep that. <laughs> They'll have to scratch that out. Well, in the few minutes we have left with you, Rick Wilson, I want you to look into your crystal ball. I mean, considering, you know, from the, the 2012 post-lapsarian, you remember uh, Romney, that shot of him in the kitchen looking all defeated and everything. Sure. And that, that post-mortem was ripped up and someone actually threw it to the wind and mm -hmm. say, no, we could actually go for the base instincts and we can go anti-immigrant and we can uh, vilify the, the supposed Muslim in the White House. And that, that worked against the right kind of candidate in the 2016. Sure. What are we going to see, uh, to the best extent you could tell us, uh, not just in 2024, but uh, beyond? I mean, if if Trump is vanquished, if he ekes out a loss, if he refuses to say he lost, if he wins, game it for me. It, look, if Trump, if Trump wins, it will essentially, and I, I know people are going to roll their eyes and say, oh, how dramatic. If Trump wins, it's the last election that means something. It's not because Trump himself can pull it off. But because the people around him 
the Steve Bannons of the world, the Stephen Millers of the world, they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in representative democracy. They don't believe in the American system. They want to burn it down and create something different. What they want to create looks like Orban in Hungary. Hungary. Or looks like Putin in Russia. They believe that we are in this civilizational battle and, and trading democracy for autocracy is the only way for them to win that battle. So they will, they will break the country, they will break the constitution, they will break the rule of law. As, as you can see, they're already very inclined to do these things. But if, um, he, if he does lose, will that be the final knell for others in the Republican Party to come out and say, I'm not afraid of you primarying me anymore. You're no, no, that, need that, to move that, on. that will last a little longer. That will last a couple years longer. But if he loses, I am afraid that the violence we saw on January 6th was a preview for what will happen in the future. I think it will be much worse. I think it will be much more dangerous. And I think we will be in a country that, that we may not recognize at a pretty fundamental level if the violence that, that has become a centerpiece of the Republican messaging, which, you know, since January 6th, oh, they're political prisoners, they're hostages, they were justified, they, the election was still, they willing, they're willing to believe things that are fundamentally untrue. And they're willing to believe things that are fundamentally dangerous. And I think we could be in a very, very dark place. Wow. Rick Wilson, a pioneering never Trumper, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, a veteran, political strategist, correspondent, patriot. He podcasts with Molly Jong Fass, who we love. We're hoping to have her on for a live show later this year. Uh, you are a best-selling author. You are a Florida man. Sir, did I miss anything? Um, look, I, I, as a fifth generation Florida man, I, you know, I think you, I think you, uh, have covered the most important part, which explains everything people. <laughs> um, listen, I, I appreciate uh, the time today, uh, and look forward to talking well, to you again I love soon. It, Rick. Thank you. Please come back on. You bet. Full disclosure. Note that oftentimes our shows run well over broadcast length, which is limited to what? 52 minutes. So if you want to hear the entirety of every conversation, Please subscribe at FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. You'll find Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodCamp, everything. It's all there, FullDRadio.com. A special shout out to our producers, Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. We are an NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ. Shout out to WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. Let's see, out west, we are on KPPQ in Ventura. I'm overdue for a trip to California. Please holler if you too would like us on your air. And don't forget to catch me every week on NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>